Are you running short of gift ideas for the approaching holiday season? Consider giving a paperback copy of The Sheila Stories, a novel of adventure and romance that is sure to warm the reader's heart. The Sheila Stories is available on Amazon. Welcome to The Sheila Stories, which relate the life of an Australian woman in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I'm Pat Kelly, your host and storyteller. Now, to get us all back up to speed, in our last episode, we heard the story Rittner Street, in which Sheila struggled to adjust to life in America. But at the end of the story, Jesse surprised Sheila when he told her he had made arrangements for them to have a proper honeymoon at the Congress Hall Hotel in Cape May, New Jersey. Now, in today's episode, we will hear the story Cape May, in which Sheila will tour the oceanfront and neighborhoods of the beachfront town, and Jesse will meet a literary agent. Cape May Sheila awoke to the sound of the surf coming through the window. Jesse lay asleep on his back with his head to the side. His skin was tan from the first week of their honeymoon. Her eyes savored his handsome face, the sharp lines of his chin and nose. The luxurious sheets of Congress Hall felt smooth against her skin. She reached her hands toward him, wanting to be closer, wanting to wake him. It had taken a few days for them to relax, the stress of the city melting slowly, like a block of ice in the sun. They had slept late each morning, taken naps on the beach, and enjoyed long, lingering dinners at nice restaurants. Cape May occupied the southern tip of New Jersey. The town itself faced south into the Atlantic at the mouth of the Delaware Bay. Unique among South Jersey beach areas, Cape May was an old town, with Victorian homes surrounded by hardwood trees, poplars, oaks, and maples, a few blocks from the ocean. And Congress Hall was grand, painted pale yellow, with three floors of rooms facing the beach and a pool with bar service. Opting to let Jessie sleep, she pulled on a robe and ambled on to their second-floor balcony. The patio and swimming pool lay beneath her. Lounge chairs and orange umbrellas surrounded the pool. A croquet course adorned the rich lawn. Beach Avenue separated the hotel from the ocean. Beyond the road, waves broke on a mostly empty beach. A lone couple strolled at the water's edge. A seagull floated nearby, and she recalled her first honeymoon at Surfer's Paradise. She had wiped Colin's tears after he told the story of Tobruk, That was 1942, only four and a half years earlier, but it seemed a lifetime ago. The waves were different here, smaller, choppier. Still, she was surprised no one surfed. People swam and sunbathed and built castles, but no one had a board. Hey, said Jessie from behind her, what are you up to out here? His arms encircled her waist and she leaned against him. Waiting for you to wake up, sleepyhead. It's almost nine. He nibbled on her neck. 
I'm as hungry as a bear. I might have to eat you. She giggled and turned into him. Let's order room service, she said. We'll eat on the patio. Now you're talking. They ate omelets with spinach and tomatoes and drank grapefruit juice and coffee. He spread cream cheese on a bagel. I might write some more today, he said, if it's okay with you. On the third day of the honeymoon, he had spent a few hours working on his novel. At dinner, he had proudly reported his progress. He'd written a first draft of the first chapter, and the outline was coming along, too. Every day since, he had spent several hours writing. Although happy for him, Sheila had grown bored with reading on the beach all day. Good on you, she said. I'll grab a bike and tour the town. She got lost on purpose. She took Beach Avenue along the shore until she ran into streets named after cities, Philadelphia, Reading, and Trenton. She turned left on Pittsburgh and rode until she ran into streets named after states, Maryland, Idaho, and Ohio. The hardwoods had disappeared, replaced by fir trees and mimosas with fluffy pink flowers. She turned left on Virginia and meandered until she came back to the hardwoods in Victorian homes. Once she found Washington Street, she got off her bike and walked it so she could admire the rambling two- and three-story homes with beautiful gardens. Innkeepers had taken over some of the larger houses, and they posted signs out front announcing overnight accommodation. Guests of the inns rocked in chairs on wide porches fronting the street. One couple waved and said hello. When she answered, they asked where she was from, which led to a conversation about living in a foreign country. The man, whose name was Reed Orenstein, had spent his war years in England. He was a literary agent on holiday with his wife, Kate. You must meet my husband, said Sheila. He's a reporter. They agreed to meet for drinks later at Congress Hall, and she continued her tour. Two blocks later, on Franklin Street, she stopped in front of a large and poorly maintained Victorian home. Faded paint peeled from the sideboards. A second-floor shutter had fallen off, and its twin dangled from one hinge. A ground-floor window had a walnut-sized hole in it, possibly from a thrown rock. She stepped onto the cracked pavement leading to the house. What a mess! But the place had a charm to it. It was huge, with lots of shade from tulip and maple trees in the yard, and enough room in the front for a flower garden. A sign tacked on the front read, For sale, as is. The overgrown shrubs hid the porch, and she didn't notice the old man sitting in the wicker chair. Want to take a look-see? he said. He stood slowly, his cap tilted, the skin sagging around his neck, his eyes were keen to do business. Oh, no, I I'm not a buyer. He slumped and frowned. But then he cocked an eyebrow. You can still get the tour. It'll keep me from falling asleep on the porch again. She chuckled. Why not? The air inside was musty with a tinge of disgusting, as if something small like a mouse had died inside the walls. There was work to be done everywhere. Stains on the ceiling, broken light fixtures, buckling floorboards. The house was a multi-year fixer-upper project, a plethora of undiscovered problems. 
and yet it held distinctive promise. The banister was made of handcrafted oak. The crown molding was intact. They went upstairs, and she found as many jobs waiting to be done as there were downstairs. The man followed her into a bathroom where she turned the faucet knob. Nothing came out. What about the plumbing, she said. It works in the kitchen. At least the cold water does. Hmm. Just curious. What do you want for this place? Seven thousand. Seven thousand dollars? How can you say that with a straight face? He clamped his lips as if trying to keep a secret. You'll be lucky to give it away, she said. It would take ten thousand or more to fix it up. Make me an offer, he said. Not me. I told you. I'm not a buyer. They met Reed and Kate Orenstein for drinks at the bar in the brown room. The bartender wore a white shirt with a skinny black tie. His hair slicked back. The wooden bar gleamed as if polished by many hands over many years. The light was soft, and a pianist played jazz. Reed didn't resemble her image of a literary agent. He was short and bald, with a thin mustache. Kate was taller than her husband and had a dark bob and mischievous eyes. Have you ever tried an old-fashioned? She asked Sheila. What's an old-fashioned? Whiskey with trimmings. I'd drink it straight, but everyone would think me a boozer. I'll try one," said Sheila. "I've just heard a great joke," said Reed. Kate frowned as if it required great fortitude to suffer her husband's humor. "Are you ready?" he said. "Fire away," said Jesse. An Irishman walked out of a bar. Sheila waited for Reed to continue, but then realized he'd already delivered the punchline. Jesse broke up. His big guffaws filling the room. Don't encourage him," said Kate. Jesse shook his head, still laughing. I can't wait to tell my cousins. They moved to a table near the piano and ordered a second round. The men discussed their favorite novels, and Kate told her about Hollywood. Producers are crazy about novels. Reed has sold six already: detective stories, murder mysteries, that sort of thing. He lets me tag along on the trips. Sounds exciting. Kate's eyes went flat, as if she didn't much care for it. It's like a roller coaster ride. I thought people in New York were fast, but it's a different world out there in movie land. Wannabe stars arrive every day, all of them beautiful, and everyone. Everyone what? Said Sheila. Kate shook her head. Nothing. It's just different. Sheila would have pressed Kate to divulge more. But Reed said something to Jesse that caught her ear. It sounds like a terrific story. How much have you written? Jesse pulled on his shirt collar. I've only begun. I can't sell it until you write it. Reed leaned forward and put his hand on Jesse's shoulder. But keep at it and call me when it's ready. Sure. Yeah. Jesse swirled the ice in his glass. He looked a bit stressed. Perhaps he worried. They had only spoken of a dream. He was unusually quiet the next morning. Over breakfast, she asked if he wanted to write again. Now let's go to the beach. They sat in lounge chairs under a cabana close to the surf. She dug her toes in the sand. The sun had not yet burned off the cool of the evening. Dark clouds clung to the horizon, and an offshore wind churned the waves. It might rain later.
What did you think of Reed and Kate? she asked. He nodded noncommittally. Lots of fun. Reed seemed interested in your story. Jesse didn't respond. What's wrong? she asked. He set his eyes on the horizon, and for a moment she thought he might not answer. But then he turned toward her. It's frustrating, he said. I feel good when I'm writing, but then the reality set in. Deep down I know. When we get back, I just know. She almost responded, but then chose to let him tell it in his own words. After the honeymoon, he said, I'll go back to work and the crime stories will come in and I'll cover them, spending long days and long nights at the office. And then we'll start a family, because that's what you want and that's what I want, and we've always said we'd have a family. I'll write for a little while, an hour now and then, trying to get the words right. But when the first baby comes and I get home from work, I want to spend time with you and the kid and... He paused and turned his head to the sea again. Go ahead, she said. Say it. I'll never finish the novel. I'll get through a few chapters, maybe even complete the first draft, but then life will get in the way. We'll have a second child, maybe a third, and I'll work harder. And you'll be tired and I'll be tired and life will get in the way. And then I'll be 40 and then 50 and I'll never write a novel. He was right. Some people had the drive to accomplish anything they wanted, to hurdle all obstacles set in their path, but not Jesse. Full of dreams and excitement, he was not built for endurance. He had written beautiful letters during the war, Words that put her next to the soldiers as they fought. Words that compelled her to cry with the islanders. He had the raw talent, but not the stamina to hold a job, raise a family, and write a novel. What if we didn't go back to the city, she said. Excuse me? What if we don't go back to Philadelphia? What if you write the novel right here? At Congress Hall? Even you can't afford that. I saw something yesterday, she said. An old broken-down house. What if I bought that house? We could live there. You write the novel, and I'll fix up the house. When it's ready, I'll open an inn. You want to stay here in Cape May? I love it, she said. But what about my job? Take a year's leave. We'll put the family off for a year or two. Focus on the writing. But I don't want to live off your money. We're married. We're in it together, she said. His eyes were skeptical, and she feared he might turn angry. But then he gazed out at the sea again. He chewed his lips so hard she thought it might bleed. And then his eyes softened. You would do that for me, he said. You foolish bastard. I would do it for us. Think about it. To live by the sea and be my own boss again. It's perfect for me, too. Slowly, the twinkle in his eye returned, and he flashed his electric smile. And they made the decision, like many decisions she had made, on the spur of the moment. Wait, says Natalie. Now they're moving to Cape May? Yes, I say, 
so Jesse can write his novel. Where is Cape May? says April. I answer, it's a beach town at the southern tip of New Jersey. Is that near Brigantine? It's about an hour's drive from there. April ponders this information. She turns to Natalie and lifts her eyebrows. I want to live at the beach. Natalie laughs. We can't live at the beach, you silly head. Why not? What about school and the house and all our friends? But April never plans things all the way through. She is always ready to charge ahead. A lot like Julie in that regard. A bit like Sheila, too. Which makes the next story tougher to tell. Okay. That's the end of the episode, Cape May, and we've covered a lot of ground. I just find this amazing that on the spur of the moment, Sheila decides to move to a new town. I could never do something like that myself. I'm I'm far too much of a planner. But as we've learned through the stories, Sheila can be impulsive. Now, in my lifetime, I've been lucky enough to visit the Jersey Shore many times mostly to the beach towns on the southern half of the state, from Atlantic City on down. What a beautiful part of the country. The beaches themselves are long and sandy and wonderful. Each beach town has its own personality and traditions that have developed over many, many summers. Now, Cape May is a bit different from most other beach towns in that it has lovely hardwood trees growing just a few blocks from the beach. Walking along the streets, you experience a delightful combination of shade and ocean breezes and leisure that is hard to describe unless you've been there. If you ever get the chance, I recommend you visit Cape May. You'll be glad you did. Now, in this story, on their honeymoon, Sheila and Jesse stay at the Congress Hall Hotel. Now, I got curious about this hotel and I did a little research. The Congress Hall Hotel is a real hotel that first opened in Cape May in 1816, just over 200 years ago. Over the years, many dignitaries have stayed there. President Benjamin Harrison liked it so much, he apparently conducted business of state from the hotel, which is how it earned the nickname the Summer White House. Over the years, it's gone through many transformations to become the grand facility it is today. If you get a chance, search for it on the internet. They've got a really nice photo gallery. In the next episode, we will hear the story off script, in which Sheila will open an inn in Cape May, and Jesse will try his hand at writing a screenplay for Hollywood. Now, I'd like to take a moment to promote my writing, if I may. The the end-of-the-year holidays are fast approaching, and you'll want to buy gifts for your friends and family. If you're struggling to find just the right present for your sister or your mother or daughter or girlfriend, think about getting them a paperback copy of the Sheila stories. It is certain to warm their hearts. The novel has received excellent reviews on Amazon. Here's what one reviewer had to say. The vivid descriptions place the reader in the midst of everything happening. This is one of the best stories about a person's life that I have read in the past two years. Another reviewer said, I enjoyed every word and had difficulty putting the book down. 
great characters, and a wonderful glimpse into Australian history. You can find the book on Amazon by searching for The Sheila Stories by Patrick Kelly. On today's episode, we had music by Cinemedia and sound effects by Noise Creations and Zapsplat.com. Thank you, friends. I'll be back soon. Bye now.